I think these videos are so helpful to give the overview, give the context, because I think for many of us, the minor prophets are somewhat mysterious, confusing, uh, and, and we maybe if we try to dip into them, well, what's the relevance to us now, several thousand years later, how does it fit from a Christian perspective? But I think those videos are so helpful, uh, and you can they've done them for every book of the Bible on the Bible Project website. Go have a little look. Uh, should you want to delve into some of the other books, so maybe as we go through the rest of these minor prophet series, you might want to watch them in advance so you can't ready prepared. So as I said, we're going to be looking at the last chapter and a half of Micah, picking up at verse nine of chapter six, uh, and we're going to be looking at two sections of that. So we're going to dive straight in. You can look it up on your phone. Your uh, Bibles are listed on the screen here. I'm reading from the NIV today. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ether which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but say nothing, because what you say I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit, the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust a neighbour. Put no confidence in a friend, even with the woman who lies in your embrace. Guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. Until he pleads my case and upholds my cause, he will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt even from Egypt to the Euphrates, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain, the earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. 
shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in the forest, in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths, and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will become trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God, and will be afraid of him. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Powerful stuff. Real contrast there throughout the passage. So this first chunk of the passage, uh, the, the accusations, the judgment that Michael relays to the people. Passing God's justice, if you like, presenting God's justice. And then the second half, looking at the hope and the restoration, speaking of God's mercy. So let's look at this first with the accusations and judgment. It starts with God calling to the city, to Jerusalem. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, but it's obvious the city is not listening and has not been listening for a very long time. They've gone their own way. They've wandered off. They've lost their anchor and they've drifted far, far from God and his ways. There's a feeling of chaos. Lots of unanswered questions. There's, there's, there's deception. Fear and, and anger are spread throughout the society. And what Michael does here is he lists a whole catalogue of sins, of walking away. Let's just look at some of these. We've got commercial dishonesty in those first few verses, verses 10 to 12. And he talks about dishonest measures and weights. And how the, the rich, the elite of society are violent liars. You know, we're told in scripture that God loves true weights and measures. It's mentioned several times throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 25, for example, says... Do not have two differing weights in your bag, one heavy, one light. Do not have two differing measures in your house, one large, one small. You must have accurate and honest weights and measures, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. And yet this is what his people were doing. This is what they were doing in the marketplace. They were using differing weights so that they could get the best from things and do people out of money and of their, of their projects. Phil Moore in his book, Straight to the Heart of the Minor Prophets, says this about these verses. The way that the people of Judah exploit one another proves that their true God is money. They carry around two sets of weights for their scales, one that weighs too little so that they can shortchange their customers, and one that weighs too much so that they can overcharge them. They lie and deceive and bully each other for profit. They fool themselves that God cares 
how they act in their leisure time, but not in their workplace. They are wrong. He has punished them in the way that he always punishes those who worship money, by making them dissatisfied with all they have, cursed in their investments, and so afraid of losing their wealth that they hoard it instead of enjoying it. So we've got this dishonest dealings, dishonest uh, trading going on, which then is outworked in the way that the elites, those who are rich in the society, they're going around violently lying, demonstrating violence and, and telling, uh, telling untruths, lying. And it's spread throughout the whole society. It's like yeast has spread throughout. Jesus picks up on this idea when he uh, was teaching and talking about the Pharisees and the scribes and their hypocrisy, their false teaching. He said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the scribes. And yet elsewhere in Scripture, we're told to be a very different kind of yeast. The, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, it says in Matthew 13, 33. It works its way through and helps change things. We're called to something better. We're not to be caught up in the yeast of wrongfulness and ungodliness, but actually the yeast of the kingdom of heaven and bring change that way. So there is commercial dishonesty. He also then goes on to flag up this deep dissatisfaction that is throughout the society. And it's seen as, and it's, and it's shown uh, as God's judgment and outworking of them walking away from Him, because it says there, therefore, in verse 13, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. Let me read how the message puts the following verses. No matter how much you get, it will never be enough. Hollow stomachs, empty hearts. No matter how hard you work, you'll have nothing to show for it. Bankrupt lives, wasted souls. You'll plant grass but never get a lawn. You'll make jelly but never spread it on your bread. You'll press apples but never drink the cider. It's a judgment from God, yes. But actually, it's also a statement of reality. Because outside of God, we can never find true satisfaction. He's made us with a spiritual hole, if you like, that can only be filled by Him. If we look for satisfaction elsewhere, we will always be disappointed. It might give us a brief moment of pleasure or joy, but then we'll always feel lacking. Because he is the one true factor that we can drink from. Now those of you who are old enough to remember the Heineken adverts from the 70s and 80s. Heineken claimed to refresh the parts other beers cannot reach. How true that is, I don't know. But that was their claim. Well, God refreshes and reaches parts that no one and nothing else can reach. That is not just a claim, that is the truth. If you're feeling in any way dissatisfied, then I would say come back to the one who will satisfy. Now when Jesus said to the woman at the well, I'll give you water, living water, he wasn't just saying it as a tease, as it might be true, it's the truth. And that's still true today. So there was deep dissatisfaction because they were looking in the wrong places. Yes, it was a judgment from God, you will not be satisfied, but actually it's just an outworking. If you're looking for 
And the wrong places you won't be satisfied. Micah goes on in verse 16 uh, and into the beginning of chapter 7 to talk about how just evil was rife. There was violence and plotting. It was intergenerational. These sins, these, these sinful actions have been perpetuated over and over again. You know, he refers to Omri and Ahab and says, You've observed the statues of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. Omri and Ahab were kings in their history. Now, if you've ever read any of uh, 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you've got these accounts of different kings through their history. Some really lived amazingly for God and society followed them, and others really turned their back on him. Only I used to do it. They really turned their back on him. And unfortunately, sadly, Omri and Ahab were going to turn their back on him. This is what 1 Kings 16, 25 and 26 says about Omri. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. What a thing to be said about someone. Sin more than all those that had gone before. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. What a legacy. What a horrendous legacy. Well, Ahab was Omri's son, and it certainly wasn't any better with him. Verses 30 to 33 of 1 Kings 16 says this about him. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So he taken his dad's sinful lifestyle and practices to a whole other level. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam and some of them, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethabel, king of the Sidians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also built an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel before him. This is what Micah is flagging up here. He's saying, you have continued the sinful actions of those kings and it's become, it's, it's now right for our society. Like father, like son, and so on, down to Micah's time. So when he says, I'm like one who's now gone out to collect fruit in the vineyard. The vineyard representing the house of Israel, the people of Israel. And he's looking for fruit. He's looking for godly men and women. And what's his observation? He says, in verse 1 of chapter 7, there's no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early things that I crave. There's no one who is faithful or Evil is right. They plot as violence. So everyone lies in wait to shed blood and hunt each other. Everyone's out for each out for themselves, pushing each other out of the way to seek the worst for them. He goes on. There's corrupt leaders even now. We're not just talking about historical leaders. Right now, there's corrupt leaders. Thor Moore again says, There's not a single person in the southern kingdom is righteous. They are ambidextrous at sin, 
Both hands are equally adept at doing that. Rulers steal from their subjects, judges auction off their verdict, and the rich foist an unjust economic system on the poor. As for the common people, they are just as bad. Friends lie to one another, lovers betray one another, and families turn on one another. Judah is rotten to the core. Its people have no hope of being declared righteous by God. There's deception and dishonesty that it's even amongst the closest relationships. That's what he's talking about here. You can't trust anyone in this society. Everyone's out forever. You never know what they're going to turn into the same spreading you said. All pretty depressing, isn't it? All pretty depressing. Anyone else feeling the weight of it right now? What a bleak description. It reminds me so much of how Romans 1 starts. Romans 1, 28 32 says, Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. What a greatest state of being. God doesn't stop there. We get to verse 7. We get to verse 7, chapter 7. And we have a but. We have a but. Don't you love the buts in the Bible? We have a but. Against this incredibly dire, dark, bleak backdrop, we get a but. But as for me, but as for me, I'm watching hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. All this is going on. All this muck, this sinfulness, this deception, this dishonesty, this violence. But, but, Michael can declare, but as for me, we can declare, but as for me. So similar to Ephesians 2. And Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world, and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now working those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest who were by nature deserving of wrath. Isn't that like the beginning of the passage in the And then you get to verse 4. But, but, because of his great love for us, because of his great love for us, it's not down to us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The parts of the Bible are so, so Yes, all this, but God, but God. Micah looks to God. He is the one that we need to look to in our distress, in our turmoil, when all that's going on around us. And there will be so many parallels, I'm sure you can see, in our current society to that that might be describing. God is still faithful. We can still look to him. He will hear and save. That's what Micah declares. That's what we can declare. The verses leading up to Micah 7, 7 are meant to show us just how much we need to look to God for hope, salvation, for redemption. Just how much we need to look to Jesus. And what follows are amazing words of hope. We get words like this in verse 8. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I have sinned, yes, against him. I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He's doing that very now. He's doing that right now in heaven. Jesus is upholding your cause. He is pleading before the Father. You are washed clean and he intercedes for us daily. Micah goes on to talk about how God will rebuild and restore We've got in verse 11, there will be a day for building your walls. There will be the day for extending your boundaries. Extending the boundaries, talking about how there's going to be ample space for the nations to come in. And even there he's saying, come back, you're called to something better. The Jewish nation have walked so far from God at this point, but he's saying, I'm not giving up on you. In fact, I still have a glorious future for you. You are called to be my people to draw in the nations and be a blessing for the nations. He even says, you know, people will come to you from Assyria. Assyria? What? But they're like the enemy. Capital E. Big bad enemy. They're going to come. From Egypt, another big enemy. They're going to come. Micah cries out in verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. He's reminding God in his prayer that they're God's. They are God's people. Come and intervene. He says, let them feed in Bashan and Gideon. Again, just by way of context there, I'm not sure how many of you are aware of Bashan and Gideon. Probably not places you've been on holiday to or know much about. But they were significant because they speak of fertility and life. Bashan is known for being a place where there was huge stately trees and the animals were all well fed. Gilead was famous for its good pasture land. And in fact, it was, it, it was a symbol of luxury. So when Michael is crying out to God and saying, restore your people 
and make them incredibly blessed. And this is what's so wonderful. Verse 15, we get God's reply. He says, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. I'm still committed to my people. I'm still committed. Look at what finishes with a wonderful set of verses that the video flagged up. Those last three verses. In fact, the whole book, if you like, builds to this point and crescendos to it. You get this repeating uh, format throughout of the accusations and warnings followed by the hope and the restoration that builds these final three verses. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression? of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. God will act. God does act because of his character and his promises. He is both a God of justice, but also a God of mercy. And what we've got here is Michael piling up God's benevolent politics. That he doesn't stray, he doesn't stay angry, that he shows mercy, he has compassion, that he is faithful. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you, Michael? The answer is no one, nothing. Nothing compares to our God. Then he gets to the final words in that verse 20, referring to God's promise. You will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore long ago. And again, the video showed that that's a, uh, an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham hundreds of years before this point when Michael speaks. That all the nations will find blessings and that's why we had this throughout the book of Micah and even in this passage this movement between judgment and hope God must confront and judge the evil among his people but he's also his covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil his mercy overcomes judgment we live in a different day today we live in a different day he didn't ignore it he couldn't ignore it he couldn't ignore our sins. He had to take action. But the action is We stand today claiming as a result. One final quote from Phil Moore as we come towards the end. The Lord cannot deny his own character by turning a blind eye to justice when we sin. He always faces up to the very real consequences and imposes the full legal penalty for the many ways in which we have defiled his creation, but he always extends his hand of mercy to. Micah prophesies that, and prophecies that the Son of God will come to earth as our Saviour unlock God's mercy towards Judah. Micah brings his book of prophecies to its final crescendo. His name means, who is like the Lord? So he ends his book with a breathless prayer, who is like you? Pardon sin and forgives. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. We have to agree with Micah. 
There is no one like the Lord willing to pay such a heavy price to ensure that mercy triumphs over judgment. There is no one like the Lord drawing the survivors of Israel and Judah close to him while catapulting their sins far away. There is no one like the Lord remembering his covenant of mercy and forever bringing repentant people back to him. The message of Micah is 27 centuries old, yet could not be more relevant to us today. So Micah speaks a mixture of accusations and hope. The title of today's preaching actually is Keep Yourself Clean. Why? Because God wants to bless us. He wants to bless us. He wants to bless you and me. He is the only way of truth and life. And through us, he wants to bless the nations. Michael reminds us that God is both a God of justice and a God of mercy. His mercy always triumphs over justice, over judgment. And the book ends in that resounding. I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Who is like you? Who is a God like you? Who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledge your life to our ancestors in days gone by. Oh, I love it. Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy. Thank you for your justice too. Thank you that you are our hope. We look to you for our salvation, knowing that you are faithful. And Lord, as we consider the world around us and all that's going on, and we can see so many parallels between what Michael was describing for his generation and his people to now, we thank you that you are still faithful, you're still good, and your purpose is still to bring blessing to the nation. Lord, will you help us to stay close to you, help us to walk closely with you, that we would know your blessing in our lives, but also be a blessing to those around us. We ask this in your name.